The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I didn't realize tonight's allowed only 45 minutes for talk and questions. I may have too much to tell you. <laughs> so, a couple years back there was a story in The Onion about a Buddhist fundamentalist sect called the Gamatana sect. And they had released, released a video in which their spokesperson was threatening to unleash waves of peace and harmony throughout the world. <laughs> and someone from the Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security said, we're going to do everything we can to prevent those waves from coming to America. <laughs> so when I read this, two questions occurred to me. One is, how on earth did they ever find out the name of the Gamatana sect? That's the name of the Thai forest tradition, which n most people don't know. Um, so how does the onion know these things? Um, it's kind of scary. It's like having drones over you. And the second question, though, is a little bit more serious. Why are peace and harmony the worst threats that you could imagine coming from the fundamentals of Buddhism? And that's the question I'd like to talk about tonight. I think the answer comes from the fact that the Buddha never tried to impose his ideas of justice on the world at large. Some people see this as a lack in Buddhism, but I think it was wisdom on the Buddha's part. Because it's easy to see when someone else is trying to impose their ideas of justice on you. You can see them as a menace. But when you're trying to pose your ideas of justice on other people, you don't see that as a menace at all. But the Buddha's really realizing that there, there's a problem there. Now, it's not that he did not have standards of right and wrong for your interaction with society. In fact, one of his duties as a teacher, as he, as he saw it, was to provide people with a basis for deciding what should and shouldn't be done, both in interaction with other people and internally. He talked about social harmony not in the context of justice, but in the context of making merit. Now, merit is one of those aspects of the Buddhism which tends to get a bad press in the West. We tend to think of it as kind of small-minded and selfish. You're looking after your own good. But actually, the activity of merit is the Buddhist preliminary answer to the question that he says lies at the basis of discernment, which is what, when I do it, will lead to long-term welfare and happiness. And his answers are generosity, virtue, and goodwill. These are the basic activities of merit. When you're searching for happiness through being generous, happiness through being virtuous, happiness through developing goodwill for all beings, it's hard to say that this is a selfish, selfish activity. And these, these are activities that actually do bring harmony. They overcome divisions in society. They bring a sense of um, that you know, society is basically a good place to be when we are generous with one another, when people are virtuous, and when we have goodwill for all beings, regardless of whether they're like us or not like us. Um, but even these standards are standards that he did not impose on anybody. As he said, generosity is something you have to do voluntarily. The precepts are things that you follow voluntarily. Developing goodwill, of course, is something nobody can force on anybody else. He, says, um, he didn't claim to be a creator guard, god or to speak for a creator god. In fact, the only standards for fairness that he imposed were on the monastic sanghas. When you establish someone in a position of authority in the Sangha, he said they have to follow sort of the systems for fair treatment that he lays out. And he warns against the things that would cause people to behave, behave in an unfair way, which are basically going off course, as you said, through desire, through anger, through delusion, or through fear. 
So because the monastic sangha are, is a sangha that people join voluntarily, that was part of the deal. When you become part of the sangha, you take on these, these attitudes or the, these standards. But as for outs the world outside, he never tried to put himself in a position of sovereignty over others. In fact, the only place in the canon where someone does invite the Buddha to sort of take over the rulership of the world, it comes from Mara, you know, the, the, the embodiment of evil. And the Buddha said no. And you know, why did he reject Mara's request? There are two reasons. One, as he said, people are always dissatisfied. He said, if you gave each person two mountains worth of gold, it still wouldn't be enough for that person's desires. So no matter how well you, be, you know, design a society, um, you would constantly be having to fight in order to maintain power. He also says in trying to maintain power, your views of what's true and what's false tend to get skewed. As you see that your power is something that has to be defended and has to be maintained at all costs, that's when people get, get strange. Okay? At the same time, you're surrounded by sycophants and power seekers, and it's a really unpleasant place to be. There's a great sutta in uh, Majjhima 90, where King Basenadi comes to see the Buddha. And Basenadi is he's kind of like the George Bush of the Pali Canon. <laughs> he has trouble saying complete sentences um, <laughs> and thinking connected thoughts. And you can see that he asks really scattered brain questions of the Buddha. And he asks a question, the Buddha says, why do you ask that question? And it turns out his, the real question he's asking is something totally unrelated to what he asks. And he's trying to get some sense out of the Buddha, he does. But then his, we have to read the sutta to realize that he's in a miserable position. He finally gets told, we don't have any more time for this, you've got to go back to the palace. So he's basically a slave to his power. As a result of this kind of power dynamic, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha told monks to stay away from teaching in palaces and other places like that. Because if you know the king comes up with a bad policy, people are going to blame the monk. So it's best to stay away. Um, he never interfered, though, with justice systems, but also at the same time he never tried to use the Dharma to justify a particular system of justice. At the same time, he never used the principle of karma to justify the mistreatment of poor and otherwise disadvantaged people. Sometimes people think that the teaching on karma says if someone's already poor, they should stay poor, but it's because of their past karma. Or if they're disadvantaged, they should stay disadvantaged. That's not what the karma teaching is saying at all. I think it comes from the misunderstanding. There's a saying you sometimes hear that if you want to see a person's past actions, you look at their present condition. If you want to see their future condition, you look at their present actions, which is much too simplistic. It's assuming that we have a single karma account and what you're seeing right now is the running balance. Actually, the Buddha said it's more like a field. Each person has a field of actions they have done in the past, which are like seeds. And the seeds are going to sprout at different rates. What you're seeing now are the seeds that are currently sprouting. But people may have other seeds, better, worse, in that field. And you can actually help other people by getting them to water the good seeds so that they can, they can get past a position of being disadvantaged. So karma is not saying people deserve to suffer when they are suffering. The Buddhist compassion doesn't say you just leave people there. Here's your opportunity to help if you have the, if you're able to. So karma doesn't say that people have to stay the way they are. More importantly though is um, from the Buddhist point of view, justice as an absolute, you have to have absolute justice for things to be tolerable in the world. It runs counter to the purpose of his teaching, which is to put an end to suffering. And he never asked people, do you deserve to suffer? If you do deserve to suffer, I'm not going to teach you. He teaches people how you can, they can end their suffering, whether they quote-unquote deserve that suffering or not. So his compassion goes to all. 
primary example of this in the canon is the story of Angulimala. You may know the story. He was in, Angulimala was a thief and a murderer. Um, according to the commentaries, he'd killed 999 people. The canon is a little bit more conservative, a couple, a couple hundred. But um, <laughs> the reason he had the name Angulimala was because he had taken a, a, the fingers of the people that he had killed, which is Anguli, and he made a garland, a mala, that he wore. A pretty gruesome character. And the Buddhist one day is going to the area where Angulimala is known to hide out, and people warn him. They say, this is a really dangerous place. You're putting yourself in, um, in peril by going there. And the Buddha doesn't listen. He goes in. Angulimala sees him and decides to, he, here's, 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 a, here's a finger he would like. <laughs> and so he chases after the Buddha, and the Buddha has this feat of psychic power that no matter how fast Angulimala runs after him, he can never catch up with the Buddha. Finally he realizes he's been defeated. And he says, stop, stop, stop. And the Buddha says, I have stopped. You haven't stopped. And Angulimala is, has enough good karma from the past that he realizes what the Buddha is talking about. So he lays down his weapons, um, cha has a total change of heart, um, eventually becomes a monk. Um, the king hears about this and says, okay, as long as he's a monk and you're in charge, I'll, I'll let him stay as a monk. And eventually he has a change of heart. He sees a woman undergoing a breech birth. And so the Buddha says, okay, go and, and make a statement of truth to her, and it sort of helps the child come out. And so Angulimala learns some compassion, eventually becomes an arahant. Now everybody likes the part of the story. They like to un identify with Angulimala. In other words, if there's hope for him, there's hope for us. And we haven't killed hundreds of people, um, so maybe we can get, get some place in our meditation. We tend to forget, though, that the people who were terrorized by Angulimala and the people whose family members, etc., had been killed by him were not happy with the situation. The story tells us that after he became an arahant, as he'd go for alms, people would throw things at him. Stones, um, shards of pottery. He'd come back with his robe all torn and his head all bloody. And the Buddha said, you know, bear with this because this is much less than the karma you would have experienced otherwise if you hadn't reached that attainment. So the basic principle here is that there are cases where justice is not done in line with the principle of karma. And this um, illustrates a larger principle that the Buddha states in Anguttara 3.101, which is that if karma were a tit-for-tat system of justice, we would never be able to find awakening. If you had to, say, if you killed a hundred people, you had to die a hundred times or be killed a hundred times before you could gain awakening, nobody would ever get there. Um, what he does say is that Karma does types of actions to tend to give types of results, but the, the, the extent to which those results will be experienced will depend on your mind state when those actions ripen. Um, the, he gives three similes for this, and the first one is the most pleasant simile. He says, your th state of your mind is like a, like a body of water. Now if your mind is limited, if you are o easily overcome by pleasure or pain, and if you don't develop virtue and discernment, your mind is like a small cup of water. If you took a large salt of crystal salt and placed it in the cup of water, you wouldn't be able to drink the water because it's too salty. But if you develop unlimited states of mind, in other words, goodwill for everybody, compassion for everyone, learn how to train the mind so it's not easily overcome by pleasure or pain, and you have practiced discernment, you have practiced virtue, your mind is like a large river. And assuming that the river is clean, if you put the salt crystal in the water, you can still drink the water because there is so much more water than that which means that karma is not deterministic. You change your state of mind, you can mitigate the effects of past karma. That's the pleasant simile. The two unpleasant similes 
are cases where a past bad action is said to be similar to a theft. In one case it's a theft of gold, in another case it's a theft of a goat. And the person who suffers a lot from that past one, he says, compared to a poor person who, if he steals a goat or steals gold, because he is poor, he's going to go to jail. And the larger mind state, the more compassionate mind state, is like the rich person who could steal some gold and steal, steal a goat and not go to jail because he's rich. Now this is kind of an offensive, offensive image, but the Buddha is basically saying that karma does not always work out in, in terms of justice. And so our question is, well, isn't justice a higher, nobler goal than the pursuit of happiness, is what the Buddha is talking about? And the Buddha's answer would be no. One short answer comes from his compassion, as I said. He taught the end of suffering regardless of whether you deserve to suffer or not, putting deserve in quotation marks. Um, the longer answer has to come from, we reflect on our Western ideas of justice, which tend to come from monotheism, which see justice as an objective, universally binding law. But it makes sense only in monotheism, whether it's the monotheism, say, of the God of Abraham or Aristotle's um, unmoved mover. The idea that there, being, there is somebody back there who has designed the universe with a certain pattern, has certain obligations that he places on us as, as his cre creatures. This doesn't exist in Buddhism. You think about the different kinds of justice we know about. One is there's what they call retributive justice, in which you figure out who hit whom first or who hit who harder and who hit whom, you know, justified or not justified. But there has to be a beginning point of the story. Who was the first person to throw the first stone? And you can see the story. The story has a beginning, the story has an end, and then you can kind of calculate the, the pluses and minuses on both sides. Um, there's what's called restorative justice, which basically says, okay, wrong was done, let's try to bring things back to the condition prior to the wrong. But that's assuming that, again, there is a beginning point, and it's also a good beginning point. Things were better before the wrong. And then finally, there's what's called distributive justice, which basically is concerned with how we distribute goods among people in society. And that assumes that there is a common source for all these things to be distributed and has set a purpose for those things. Now, without these assumptions, the basis of your application of justice gets very, very shaky. And the Buddhist worldview doesn't support any of them. In terms of the beginning point, the Buddha says, you know, you can, the beginning point of time is not only unknowable, it's also inconceivable. You can't even conceive what it would be like to begin time. And so there's no point where you can begin things. There's a famous story in Thailand of Sumdet Do, who was a famous monk back in the 19th century. A young monk came to him one day and said, this other monk hit me. And Sumdet Do said, no, you hit him first. And the monk said, no, no, he didn't hit me. I was just sitting there and doing nothing. He came up and hit me over the head. I hadn't done anything. Somebody does said, no, you hit him first. And so the young man realized he's not getting anywhere with Somdet Do. And so he goes to complain to another senior monk. The other senior monk comes and says, Somdet Do, what's up with this? And Somdet Do says, well, obviously, past karma, he, didn't, the, he hit the other guy first at some point in past in the time. Um, so if you try, start chase, tracing things back like that, you don't know where can you begin, because there is no beginning point. When the Buddha talks about you know, that image, he says that you cannot meet anyone who has not been at some point your mother or father or sister or brother or son or daughter. It's not for the basis of compassion, it's for the basis of dismay. Thinking about how many stories you have with all the people that you meet. And John Fuang once said, it's a good thing we can't remember our previous lifetimes, otherwise we'd be getting vengeance um, all the time. <laughs> 
So it's kind of a dismaying thought about how far these stories can go back. Um, now some people don't like this worldview, and for this reason they say this is good enough reason, let's jettison it from the Buddhist tradition. However, it does have some basis, or some much to recommend it as a basis for pursuing social harmony without imposing standards of justice. And let me explain. First, we look at the source of the world, which is the Buddha's three knowledges on the night of his awakening. In the first knowledge, he reflected on the fact that the question of what did he had previous lifetimes, he began to remember many, many lifetimes after he'd gotten his mind into concentration, going back many, many aeons. Um, which, by the way, was not a common belief in India at the time. Not, in other words, not everybody believed this. It was a controversial point, in fact. You know, did rebirth happen? And if rebirth did happen, was it connected with karma? There are huge debates on the topic. So the Buddha was not simply picking up an idea from, from his time. But he focused on looking back and he realized that oh, there, is no, there is no conceivable beginning to the many, many lifetimes you've had. His second knowledge was the question, okay, does this process of rebirth apply only to him? And, and, and if, does, if it applies to others as well, what's the mechanism underlying it. That's when he saw that it was people's karma. In other words, your intentions and your views causing you to act in certain ways, those are going to determine how you're going to be reborn. And you can see this happening all over the cosmos. What he learned from seeing this is, one, is that there's no one in charge of the cosmos. The people are living in terms of their own karma, and it's their own karma that determines these things. Um, and that this system can potentially continue without end. There's no possibility for a fair closure or any closure at all, aside from getting out of the system entirely and attaining nirvana. The lessons from these two knowledges, again in line with the principle of the salt crystal, is that people suffer from their own mind states, and it's because of their greed, aversion, and delusion. And as long as there's greed, aversion, and delusion, no system of justice would last. Again, we'd never be satisfied with the justice that was given. In this sense, justice isn't noble in the Buddhist definition of noble, in other words, something that lies beyond aging, illness, and death. But the happiness offered by nirvana is noble in that sense. It's another lesson that he learned from these two, as I said earlier, there's no beginning or ending to the stories that we could tell about who did what to whom. Um, in, this, in this case, justice is not an end, for in this universe there are no ends. It's, everything is just means. The way you tr go about trying to attain a goal is basically what you are contributing to the universe. Because many times you can work in a good way for something that doesn't succeed, but at least you've gotten something good into the universe. In a c other cases, you do something really unskillful for what you think is a noble goal. The goal may, may or may not be attained. It's never an ending goal. It, there, it will, no one will ever be satisfied with the system of justice you try to impose on the world. But in the meantime, you've put a lot of bad stuff into the world by going it in an unskillful way. What this means also is that the story is used to underline the use of force to impose justice. And there's always a story behind someone saying, we have to justify using force because so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that. But it means the stories would also have to be imposed. We see this even in a secular universe. You look at world history. The reason we have wars is because one side says one story and the other side says another story. This is the reasons why we have revolutions, counter-revolutions. It's always the stories that are different on one side and the other side. And if you try to impose your story on somebody else, they're going to fight back. So this act to impose justice can actually divide us. Again, this is something that is, leads to a state that is not, that cannot be stable. And so he figured out the best use of these first two knowledges is to put an end to the causes of this whole process in the heart. 
In other words, look at the greed, aversion, and delusion that underlie these things, the craving and ignorance. And by that, well, that way you end the process of karma, and then you can't escape from that. Which is why the focus of his teachings is not so much secondarily on world harmony and world peace. Primarily it's developing the causes of the end of suffering and the causes of harmony inside. And it's, this is the only path that he said was truly noble. Now it's not the case that he didn't address issues of social harmony, but he didn't do it in the context of justice. Um, instead he saw it as part of a wise pursuit of happiness. He would talk about the rewards of helping the disadvantaged, the rewards of being harmless to other people. At the very beginning you'd create good karma for yourself, you help people who otherwise might, might suffer. And you have less need to fear your own death. So he talks about wealth sharing also as a good policy. He says the wise king will provide basically grants to people so they can set themselves up in business. Not as an issue of justice, but as an issue of wisdom. The, the generosity is what keeps society going. And keeping a society stable and going is in everybody's interest. So if we were to think about trying to work for social change under the headings of Buddhism, we'd have to think, okay, we have to put aside the concept of justice and focus more on what the Buddha has to say about generosity, virtue, and the development of universal goodwill. We're focusing on the means by which we try to bring a better situation in society. Now, there are some conditions that the Buddha places on these activities. First is that, as I said earlier, that they are voluntary. You can't try to, you know, use Jewish guilt or Chinese guilt on people. You know about Chinese guilt? It's just like Jewish guilt. <laughs> you can't use this sort of guilt to, to try to force people to say, you've got to help with our efforts. You try to make them as attractive as possible. You say, this is a wise policy. This is a generous policy. This is a virtuous policy. I mean, I'd really like to see a march on Washington where people put up signs that says, we want generosity, we want virtue, we want goodwill. Out of, um, out of our out of our politicians, um, they wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> Secondly, if you're going to be practicing generosity and virtue, you have to make sure that it doesn't harm yourself and doesn't harm others. Now, harming yourself and others in, t in, in case of generosity is not overextending yourself or not forcing other people to overextend themselves. In terms of virtue, it means. Not harming yourself means you're not going to break the precepts. No killing, no stealing, no illicit sex, no lying, no taking of intoxicants. Not harming others means you don't get them to break the precepts. You respect the fact that they too are agents. Their future is going to be determined by their actions. So you don't say, well, I'll, let's justify sending soldiers off to war. I'm not going to war, but I'm going to try to get you to go to war. That would not be in line with Buddhist principles. Third, it means that we would have to apply goodwill to everybody, even the people who are opposing our policies, and try to get them to see that it actually is, well, make sure that it is in their best interest to follow our policy, and then try to let them see, them, let them see that themselves. The Buddha never says, as is sometimes attributed to him, that you have to love everybody the same way a mother loves a child. The passage actually says you try to protect your goodwill in all situations the same way that a mother would protect her child in all situations. So that even when you, know, you see people on, on the media who are behaving in outrageous ways, you've got to figure out, okay, what would be goodwill for this particular person? And remember, as I said earlier, it means basically, may this person understand the causes for to happiness and be able to act on them. You're not saying, may you be happy as you already are doing horrible things. May you learn how to stop doing horrible things. And then the question is, how do we figure out a way to talk them into that?
seeing that it is for everybody's benefit and for theirs. Um, the advantages of, of pursuing social change in this context, one, it, it addresses the mind states that would destroy even the best system of justice. In other words, we're working against greed, working against aversion, we're working against delusion. In the practice of um, generosity, we're, we're trying to overcome selfishness and greed. In the practice of virtue, we're trying to overcome the carelessness that with which people can harm each other so easily. With goodwill, we can overcome factionalism. And goodwill is meant for everybody, people of all races, all backgrounds, all whatever dividing things that you, you see in the society. Goodwill is meant to erase those distinctions. And that we can use that as a basis for communicating and creating a sense of harmony in society. It also means that we have no need for the stories that divide us. I mean, you may decide that you're following this path because you believe in the story of the Buddha's awakening. But you don't need that story in order to justify being generous. Generosity is good in and of itself. You don't have to justify, use that story to justify virtue. Virtue is good in and of itself. You don't need to use that story to justify goodwill for everybody. Goodwill for everybody is something that's good in and of itself. So we don't need to use impose stories on other people that other people may, may reject. Because we're, we're acting, we're doing, engaging in activities that are good in and of themselves. Now there is one drawback here, that sometimes that there are some injustices that cannot be addressed by generosity, virtue, and goodwill. But they can be undone only by using unskillful thing, means by lying and killing. And you say, wait a minute, that kind of injustice, I can't fight. But I can figure out other ways around it. Maybe learn how to mitigate it to what extent we can. Because you start using unskillful means, it's going to just bring the forces of unskillfulness in society, no matter how good you say that your goal is. The good news here is that we don't need to wait for a perfect society in order to find happiness. Now this is, and this is not a selfish thing. It would be more selfish to make others feel ashamed of their desire to find a happiness that is harmless, or a happiness lying within through the pursuit of generosity and virtue and goodwill to get them to pursue the elusive goal of a perfect society, which is never going to happen. And even if we did get it perfect, it wouldn't last. So in other words, the road to true happiness is not selfish. It, it depends on acts of merit, generosity, virtue, goodwill that heal old divisions and create new ones, and they create no new ones in their place. And it's this way that is in practicing Buddhism we actually are releasing waves of peace and harmony throughout the world. Even as you leave the world, it's not a case of people leaving the world through the practice are actually selfish in, in their practice. You have to be generous, you have to be virtuous, you have to have goodwill for all in order to be able to get out. And you're leaving behind a lot of good things as you leave. Now in the case of the Gamatana sect, you know, John Mun became an arahant and he's sort of out of samsara. But he's left behind a lot of good teachings. And I know in my own case, I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't encountered those teachings. We can each of us look back at the Dharma the Buddha left realize we benefited an awful lot, even though he's left some sorrow, but he left a lot of good things behind, which is an, an example of how to find, among them, how to find harmony through practices that actually are conducive to harmony and, instead of trying to divide us. So, those are my thoughts for the evening. I was wondering if you had any thoughts in return. <laughs> My thoughts. Um, thank you. I find that my mind is 
spinning because I find that the ideas just come so quickly. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, yeah, it's, 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 it's great to hear. But I'm just wondering if you have any, is there writing that you have or something? I, mean, I guess I could listen to the talk again on the audio dhamma. But I wonder if you have something you ri- you've written that's about this social justice there's a, issue. There's an article on um, dhammatalks.org. And by the way, that's a better place to look for my writings, is on dhammatalks.org. Um, called Wisdom Over Justice. Wisdom Over Justice. Okay, thank you. Yes. So this is about um, um, current issues Mm -hmm. in Burma Mm -hmm. with the... um, the um, Muslim refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go into the, the what I know about it, but yeah. could you talk about the um, mentality that Buddhists would have, where they feel it would be right for them to kill or harm others? That's when they're taking off their identity as Buddhists. And they're thinking in other terms. They're not thinking in Buddhist terms. It's like Christians. Does every Christian behave in a Christian way? No, but uh, it's a country that's based on Buddhism. Yeah, but a culture of Buddhism, a po- culture of goodwill. I, I know in Thailand people would say, you know, it, like if you're a government employee and you're telling your other government employees that we really ought to behave in, in an uncorrupt way, they would say, go to the monastery. Because there is an counter anti-Buddhist element in every Buddhist culture. And this is what's driving the military in Burma. That's all I can say. It's not Buddhist at all. Okay, thank you. Pass it down. I was meditating And when I came out of my meditation, my purse was gone. Hmm. Just I've looked everywhere for it, and I can't find it. And so, yes. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yes, that's it. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God. Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a blessing. I was trying to figure out what am I to learn from this. (laughs) Walked up and down the street looking for it, and I thought, God, where did I leave it? <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> Any other questions? Kanjan, you mentioned that uh, the idea of justice, as we understand, 
comes from a monotheistic uh, mm -hmm. uh, way of understanding. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat inclined to say that it doesn't have to be monotheistic, it just can be any theistic uh, way because I come from a background of polytheistic, polytheistic mm -hmm. uh, uh, religion and, and there uh, also there is a concept of a just war Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, uh, present in mm -hmm. in Hinduism. So, um, Buddhism, in contrast, is just setting aside the whole idea of a mm -hmm. of a just war. So, mm -hmm. you know, in in a lot of ways, um, it just seems like theism in itself uh, tries to impose the idea of justice mm -hmm. on people. Well, if you have someone with a plan for the universe that you have to obey, then, then, then the ideas of justice come in as something that you can impose on somebody else. You say, I'm speaking for this God, and this God is telling me, you've got to do X. Whereas in Buddhism, we don't have that. And for the Buddha himself, never, you realized he was not in a position to impose his teachings on anybody. He spoke more as an expert. You know, this is how it's done, and if you want to put an end to suffering, here are the ways you can do it if you want. Um, he was always very careful not to impose things on people. So as a follow-up to that, I was thinking about how often you, you translate the word metta as goodwill. Mm -hmm. uh, often in the West it's also translated as loving-kindness. Mm -hmm. And I understand um, your reasons for not translating it that way. And, uh, if you ask me, I agree with that. But uh, I have a feeling that is also somewhat tied with the idea of it comes from maybe the idea that we want to be loved and we want to love. We sort of feel like that is a virtue or something. Mm -hmm. And that also probably comes from the theistic thing that, oh, our parents love us, we got to love them, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. That yeah. I don't, I can't, I can't speculate on. I mean, the Buddha does talk about kindness as a virtue. Love, however, the Buddha, he says, is potentially divisive. You know, you love X. And if somebody else treats X well, you're going to love that person. If somebody abuses X, you're going to hate that person. If you hate Y, somebody else abuses that Y, you're going to love that person. <laughs> and if somebody else abuses, I mean, somebody else is friendly with Y, you're going to hate that person. So love can actually be a force for divisiveness. But goodwill, you know, you're not asked to like the person or even love the person. It's just you say, it would be good if this person could act on the causes for true happiness and you know, you know, know the, understand those causes and be willing to do that. And to whatever extent you can help other people see that, you're happy to do it. And that way, that way you can apply that thought even to monsters on TV or monsters on the media that we're seeing every day now. Um, Jeff, Jeff, there's a question behind you. Uh, thank you. Uh, if Goodwill is considered to be kind of an, uh, an antidote to anger. Mm -hmm. um, is there a corollary antidote in the practical sense to that that um, compulsion to impose one's will on others, which is at least in my experience is aligned with mm -hmm. sometimes wanting justice. Well, mm -hmm. we're going to impose our will to make this situation better. Is there a corollary? Equanimity. Equanimity. Yeah. And equanimity is not basically saying, okay, whatever happens, I don't care. 
What it means is, okay, here's a situation that I can't really change unless I try to do, thi do things that are unskillful. I should look for areas where I can make change in a skillful way, which may take a little bit longer, be more indirect, but it's a much better use of your energy rather than trying to say, okay, I'm going to get to this end and I can see an unskillful way to do it. I'm going to justify that unskillful way by the means. Equanimity is the counteractant for that. That plus, plus an understanding of karma. And equanimity is based on that. Thank you. I was wondering if you would agree that this would be a good analogy, that people have historically erected God or states to enforce notions of justice, or to regulate behavior, mm -hmm. virtue, maybe goodwill. And the equivalent in Buddhism might be this naturalistic understanding of karma as regulating quasi-state of nature that imposes the effects, whether they be positive or negative, when someone pursues these virtuous actions, this goodwill, this generosity. And not quite catching your question. So yeah, is this an, a good analogy that like the Buddhist explanation for the way things are, mm -hmm. the way that social justice or the world could be a better place to be realized is when people understand karma and its negative effects. And that's analogous to us erecting this state which does the tallying of all the negatives and all the bad, all the pluses, or the redistribution, mm -hmm. or the restoration. Um, in both cases, the justice would be pretty rough. Now, the Buddha never tries to interfere with the system of justice that a nation has imposed, um, and at the same time, he never tries to use, you know, Dharma principles to justify a system of justice. He realizes this is just something that states do. Um, now, when you're talking to other people about why it would be good for them to be more generous, more virtuous, have more goodwill. You don't have to bring in the whole teaching on karma, but just say basically your actions do have an impact on what's going to come back at you. I mean, the people who believe in determinism are hard people, very hard to talk to. Or people who believe that everything is, there's no real cause for things, or the universe is totally neutral in terms of just being atoms and whatnot. Those people are hard to talk to in these terms. But most people don't believe that consistently. Even people who believe in determinism will choose which restaurant to go to. You know. <laughs> and so if you can point out to someone, someone that it would be good in your long-term best interest if you could act in a more generous way. They may not have to believe in the whole system of karma, but just realize that your actions are going to come back to you in certain ways. And you can point out to them, there, there are ways in which it does happen in this lifetime. You, you, you know, put your hand in the fire, you don't have to wait till the next lifetime for it to burn. It's, it's going to burn right now. And there are a lot of things we can see in this lifetime. And you get people to see, okay, their actions it would be much better for everybody if you know, income were not so unequally distributed. I mean, I missed him. I see the tech industry here in the Bay Area as a huge cancer. It's sucking everything out, out of the rest of society into a very few, very few hands. So it'd be good to think about that. But if we could, you know, I remember when I was a kid, it was taught in civics classes that a, you know, a stable society requires a large middle class. And that's been forgotten. 
so she could help people see that they don't have to believe in karma entirely, but see that their actions will have an impact coming back to them and point out to them, okay, if you're, if you're short-sighted, you're going to be missing some long-term harm that you're doing to yourself. That's really all that's needed. Question in the back. Hi, thank you. Um, I wanted to explore the relationship between justice and happiness, where um, a basic tenet for people to be happy or content in their minds especially is if they live in a just society or justice has been delivered to them, mm -hmm. right? So in, this, in your story of uh, where the monk uh, got hit by the other monk and went to the senior monk to complain about it, mm -hmm. um, how will the monk reconcile in his mind after being told that you hit him in another life, mm -hmm. but in his mind he's still not been delivered the right justice. Mm -hmm. So how will he reconcile it in his mind for the future of his own happiness? Well, he learned, don't go to that monk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and there, if you make your happiness dependent on receiving justice all the time, it's going to be very, very unstable. And so there comes, there comes a point where you say, okay, I've, I've, I've gone through the normal channels and it's not working. Maybe this is something I've got to accept for the time being and look back on myself. But again, you, you, do, you, you don't just give up on justice. You just realize, okay, maybe there is, there is, there is something karmic that's getting in the way. And in a society like Thailand, I've seen people more willing to you know, be okay with, you know, they don't like it, but they say, okay, this is, some, this is an area where Justice is not going to be done, or what seems to be justice to me is not going to be done. I've got to work on my internal attitudes. And again, if there's ways you can change society that are virtuous and generous ways, then whatever change comes is going to be a change that's going to last a lot longer, because it's going to be more widely accepted. Okay, I'm a little overwhelmed. I would like to know if... Um, you know, throughout the history of civilization, if if there is an example of um, a civilization or system of justice that would meet the standards of what you're describing, or if justice after all this time is still kind of an utopic thing that man won't reach. I've never seen a society totally just. But I've seen cases where you know, individuals were able to mitigate the injustice of the society through their virtue, through their generosity, through their goodwill. And make some, a system that otherwise would be unlivable, they can actually make it livable. And where people feel, okay, we're working on this together, rather than we're focusing on things that separate one another. Because it is that sense of, okay, we're in this together, and there's a, you can depend on a sense of goodwill. But if, if those individuals are able to mitigate, um, are you then saying that they couldn't create a better system of justice? Or anytime you, even with good intention, you're able to mitigate, but if you try to create something, it's not going to work because you're going to have to impose your views anyway? This is going to be a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. I mean, there's some cases where people get together and say, you know, the way we do things is, you know, 
burning witches doesn't really work. And people finally saw, yeah, this is, this is really unjust and we should stop doing that. But it, but it takes, it takes good will in order to, for everybody to see, okay, this is not working. So what, what would you leave us with the, you know, what do you see the hope for justice? The hope for justice is through starting with these other terms, generosity, virtue, goodwill. And as you get a sense of our common humanity, and the, and the sense that we in the civil society are working together rather than working across purposes, then we can talk to another. And then talk about you know, what would be a better way to do this. See, I mean, that, that's what I'm, I'm working on in my work, but what I don't understand is, is how... I don't see why, if individuals are able to understand common humanity, why can't we create a system that would be able to be applied across? Okay, well then the question is, what, how would you define justice in that system? And you might start discovering mm. that you have some disagreements about what counts as justice and what doesn't. Because like common humanity is not a universal concept? It is a universal concept, but some people would say, well, common humanity is mitigated by the fact that some people are smarter about their money than others. Some people uh, have connections, other people don't have connections. And there is, a, there is that issue of past karma. Some people look at each other and mm, you know, <laughs> because yeah. based on, okay, something that somebody else did. It, it's, the Buddha doesn't say justice is a bad thing, but he says it comes secondary to wisdom. Well, it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I guess, you know, when you go to school, like, you think, like, just, you learn justice is doing the right thing. <laughs> and, you know, so... Well, sometimes doing the right thing is being more generous to people than they deserve. <laughs> but then you think they might deserve, you know. I'm going to think about that further. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. okay, I guess we've run over time. So thank you for your questions and your interest.